You can have a seat. Well, good morning. My name's Josh. I'm the pastor here. It's great to be with you. Happy Father's Day to all the fathers in the room. It's uh, a particularly special uh, Father's Day for me. It's my first time as a biological father. And uh, so there's lots of feels around that. And I think also one of the major lessons God's teaching me in this season of life is what it means to really know him as my father. And um, there was a, a Christmas break during my college years where I came home and just got super sick, like an incredible uh, infection in my throat, like, like some kind of extreme form of strep. And I could barely swallow, and I was miserable. I couldn't, like, turn my head because my neck was so, like, inflamed and all that stuff. And my dad happened to uh, take that week off uh, of work because it was the holidays and when I had quality time with the family, ended up just taking care of me the whole time. My dad was a doctor, so he had some medical experience. Uh, and, you know, and I would like, this was like early parts of the beard, so I had this big scraggly beard that shouldn't have been grown on my face. And, you know, I was like, I wasn't like a cute little kid. Uh, I was a weird semi man that needed to be cared for by, by my dad. And I just remember that, that whole week, uh, my dad was just really present to me. He watched movies with me. He took me to doctors. He, cause he's medical, he knew kind of like the inside track. So he got some like extra stuff for me and, uh, meds to make it more comfortable and stuff like that. And I just remember a deep sense of like, uh, a feeling loved, uh, by my dad that week. And, um, I say that story because as we think about uh, fathers, our own fathers, and we think about being fathers, if you, if you have kids. Um, the, the connection between God as our father and our, he, our earthly fathers is, uh, is inseparable for good or for bad. And uh, I believe most of us uh, have some element of, uh, of ways that our fathers, even in their own limits, kind of showed us some of the good qualities of, of God. And we can thank God for that. We can consider how we've experienced that. And then uh, of course, we would be lying to ourselves if we said that today wasn't a, a particularly hard day for some of us, and having uh, huge holes in our life where our dads weren't there, or where our dads might have hurt us. Uh, even the best dads are obviously not perfect uh, and are going to let us down, and then, of course, we have abusive dads and absent dads and all kinds of stuff like that, and uh, the, the good news of the gospel is that uh, God, our Father, can heal those wounds uh, in, in Jesus Christ, so... Uh, my, my prayer is that this Father's Day uh, will we'll draw our hearts to God, our Father in heaven, uh, and as we honor our earthly dads uh, as we can. Well, because I uh, grew up in the suburbs where there wasn't a whole lot to do, I hung out in the mall a lot, and, you know, that middle school age where you can't drive, and so you kind of go there with your friends and walk around, but you have no money, so you're just walking around looking at stuff and, you know, tr trying to figure out ways to get a Cinnabon or something. And uh, and I guess I was kind of maybe a weird kid or I thought too much because by the end of middle school, early high school, I was like over the mall. I just hated going there. And I hated how like every store seemed to hold out this, this ideal that I was, would never reach. And of course I was broke, so I could never like buy the stuff to try to reach the ideal. Uh, you know, and I just, wa I would always leave feeling a little bit crappy about myself, wishing that I made money to buy a $50 polo or something like that, um, or knew exactly which Yankee candle to buy. Uh, and if you like malls, cheers. Like, if malls aren't bad, like, you know, get your mall on if you like them. But as I've learned more about what the Bible teaches it means to be a human, how the human heart is wired, uh, I've kind of come to see that malls are actually brilliant capitalist inventions that are meant to target some really specific parts of our humanity. 
And w- what I'm saying is that I see the Bible teaching us that all of us humans are like arrows that we're pointing at something. We're pointing, uh, we're seeking after something. And we talked about this last week in terms of desires, what, what we treasure, what our precious is. And Jesus uh, this week kind of gives us similar language or different language for, this, for a similar thought, which is what, which kingdom are we seeking after? As humans, we can't not seek after a kingdom. And so as we continue in our Sermon on the Mount, we're, we're at the, the passage where it talks about if your eye is good, then the whole body's good. If your eye is bad, then your whole body's bad and you walk in the darkness. Uh, and then we talk about money. And uh, because, I don't know if you're feeling it, the Sermon on the Mount can be kind of relentless. I, I wanted to kind of take a pause and, and give us some kind of foundational understanding of how we understand the Sermon on the Mount in light of the gospel and specifically the, this idea of kingdom. Jesus talks about kingdom a lot, and what does he mean when he says, repent because the kingdom is, is at hand? What, what does he say when he says, seek, the, seek first the kingdom of heaven, and all these things will be given to you? And what I want us to hear, whenever Jesus says kingdom, I think it's helpful to think of it in terms of the good life with God. When Jesus says kingdom, he's saying that we can now experience life with God under his rule. So when he says, repent because the kingdom of heaven is here, he's saying, repent because you can now experience life with God under his rule. Leave the stuff that isn't God that you're seeking for happiness and satisfaction and experience life with God. When he says, seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added to you, he's saying, seek first the good life with God. Seek first the kingdom of God, the good life with God, and everything else will fall into place. And what's crazy is that the marketing gurus out there, they seem to know the human heart way better than most churches. Because each of those stores, at least in the middle part of the mall, is like a little picture of a kingdom. The kingdom where you, you have uh, Sun kingdom, where everybody's trendy and plays by their own rules and somehow has money even though they just skateboard by the beach all day. And then you have Brooks Brothers, where it's the, it's the good life of the English gentleman where you can kind of pretend like you have a haberdashery, or wh- whatever that, that word is. Classy, elegant, efficient, sophisticated. Then you have Victoria's Secrets. I'm not going to expound on that one. You know, it, it, it has some kind of vision of a good life. And the branding and image and everything about these stores is meant to point us to this picture of a kingdom. And then, of course, the point is that you then make a purchase to get into the kingdom or to get closer to that ideal not bad to shop at a mall what i'm trying to say is that this is the way we're wired as humans to be kingdom seekers we all of us are seeking a good life where all of us are pointed towards a good life it's just a question of which one there's no way that we can bypass the part of humanity where our eyes are looking towards a good life so the invitation then is to consider how to seek first the kingdom of god how to forsake all these other kingdoms So for today, uh, we're actually not going to get to uh, the Sermon on the Mount because I just wanted to do kind of like a, a foundational thing. Because I think there's a couple of different tensions and nuances that we see as we walk through the Sermon on the Mount and some of the really bold, invasive things that Jesus says about our life. And I think we can place that in the gospel. Essentially, what we're going to do today is we're going to look at some biblical theology of what the gospel is, what the whole gospel is. Let me get my bulletin. I forgot it. 
So if you look in your sermon notes section, I kind of mapped out, instead of having bullet points, I made a little, a little chart, a little map. What, what I want us to see is how all the different parts of the gospel relate. Now there's one gospel, there's one good news of Jesus Christ that has three parts. And we've said it here a lot, and we didn't invent it, but the gospel isn't the ABCs of Christianity. It isn't Christianity 101. It's actually the A to Z of Christianity. It's everything that Christianity is. And in this, this diagram, I hope, will show us how it can kind of map all of our life onto it. And if we do this in membership class, so it might be familiar to you. And listen, if you're a doctrine person, I, sometimes we talk about, like, well, we don't have Sunday school, or we don't do Bible studies, and Lord willing, someday we'll do that more. But listen, today is a, is a doctrine sermon. Today is a theology sermon. If, if we can really grasp this biblical picture of what the gospel is, you will be far ahead of many pastors, people who have been to seminary. If we can understand the fullness of the gospel as scripture reveals it, uh, th- this, this is some, some nerdy stuff. I think it's incredible power for our lives. So we're going to dive in. Three parts of the gospel. You see it there in the box. There's the kingdom. And then top right, there's the cross. Bottom right, there's grace. Kingdom, cross, grace. So we're going to walk through this and kind of see how they relate and how this applies to our, our, our trip through the Sermon on the Mount. So the kingdom box there refers to what we've already said. The kingdom, the gospel of the kingdom, the good news of the kingdom is that we can have life with God under his rule. The good news of Jesus Christ is that we get to be with God, that we can live joyfully under his rule because he's God and we're not. We can take a load off and we can trust him and obey him. And this is a, this is a little, little, trick, little tricky or prickly, but let me, let me propose this to you, is that the gospel of the kingdom is the point. It's the reason the gospel's here. It's the, the goal of the gospel is the kingdom, is that we might experience life with God under his rule. So let's look at some scripture and kind of map out where this comes from in scripture. First, this is what Carrie read. If you flip to page 1937, Revelation 21 in your pew Bible. One of the nice things that God has done for us in his word is given us a picture of the end. We don't have to guess on what it's going to be like. He gives us a picture of the end. Let me read Revelation 21, verses 1 through 3, page 1937, if you're following along in the Pew Bible. It says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice saying from, from the throne, saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. This is what the gospel is pointing to. This is what Jesus came to earth to accomplish, is that he might pay for our sins, bring us into a relationship with God, and now we can experience life with God under his rule for forever. Through the cross, by grace, we enter the kingdom of God. And you see that in the chart there. On the right side of the box uh, is the gate. And what's in the gate? It's the cross. How can God and man be one? How can we be reconciled to God? It is only through Jesus and his cross. 
The cross represents the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. That's the only way to enter the kingdom. And it's, it's one of the most clear examples, clear display of God's grace to us, unmerited favor to us in Jesus. 1 Peter 3.18 is maybe the most helpful verse to see this, how the cross is part of bringing us in to the kingdom. It's not part of it. It's the only way we get into the kingdom. Look at 1 Peter 3.18, which is on page 1890 here in the Pew Bible. For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body but made alive in the spirit. So we see the cross, the life, death, and resurrection here is that he died for sins to bring us to God. The, the point was not just to forgive us of our sins, though that is part of it and a crucial element of it, the point of the cross is so that we can now enter into life with God. Why did Jesus die? To forgive us of our sins. Yes. Why do we need our sins forgiven? So that we could experience life with God. So one of the unique opportunities, I suppose we could call them, though sometimes it doesn't feel it at the time, is that our church is right across from the jail. So sometimes when I'm here all alone uh, during the week, uh, people will knock on the door because they just got out of jail across the street and don't have any where to go or anything to do. And this happened a couple weeks ago. This guy came and his phone was dead. He didn't have any minutes. Uh, he missed the last bus. I guess the Salvation Army gave him a bus ticket, but he missed it. So he had to wait the next day and didn't know who to call and whatever. My point is that Jesus, if we think of our sin keeping us in jail, Jesus doesn't just get us out and say, try to not mess up. You're on your own. And I think a lot of us, we, we think of the gospel like that. The good news of the gospel is that we're out of jail now. And so now we got to do it. Now we got to figure out how to find a place to stay and get home and not miss our bus. And, 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 all, and we're kind of helpless. And for sure, the cross points us to the truth that by ourselves, we're sinners. We've rejected the kingdom, rejected life with God. But Jesus' perfect life is, is given to us. His death pays the penalty. He does get us out of jail, if you will, the prison of sin but then his resurrection seals us to life with God. The, by contrast, instead of showing up on Stewart Street in the middle of the day with nowhere to go and no phone, we have the image of the prodigal son leaving his life of sin and destruction with the pig, with the pig slop and returning to his father to receive a hug and a party dressed in new clothes. I think there's so much power if we can if we can really grasp what the goal of the cross is. I've been in Christian circles where we're just going around telling each other, Jesus died for your sins, Jesus died for your sins, Jesus died for your, for your sins. Well, we're addicted to porn and we're anxious and we're not sleeping and we need coffee to get us up and we need melatonin to go to sleep at night and we're, and we're so wound tight. So, well, well, clearly there's something else to it. You know, clearly there's, there's an element of life with God. That, that we're missing. Yes, the cross pays for our sin, but it also brings us to life with God. So let's just think practically. If you're just forgiven, sometimes we can slip into, I'm forgiven, but now I gotta get it together. Then life, our life will be full of shame. 
If Jesus died for you, he did an incredible act of kindness. He died for you. Why are you such a mess? Why can't, why can't we get it together and we'll be full of guilt? In a counseling relationship years ago, I asked someone to share their Christian testimony with me, someone who was steeped in a pornography addiction and was starting to see it break down all of his relationships around him. And he said, oh, my Christian testimony is marked by guilt. Er, hold the phone. It's categorically not a Christian testimony. So even though this person had heard the gospel, Jesus died for your sins, clearly there was a breakdown in the, the relationship that the cross brings us into. So if we're trying to get it get together and struggling with shame, or we're trying uh, to, to pay Jesus back because we feel guilty that he would die for us, well, it's distinctly different than Jesus died for you, so now you're God's beloved. Now in Christ, the Father wraps his arms around you and loves you and affirms you and dresses you in clean clothes and is pleased with you. Then there is hope. Then there's hope for transformation because guilt and shame don't change people, at least not in the long run. Only relationships change people. Relationship with God and relationship with others. Maybe we've grown up in churches where, praise God, do focus and proclaim and preach the cross. But if we just stay there, we have a weak view of the kingdom, a weak view of life with God under his rule, and we just get stuck in cycles of shoulds and oughts. This repent and try harder versus repent and receive the Father's love. We look at the cross ashamed that Jesus had to do that for us, ashamed that he laid down his life and I can't even get my quiet time together right. But if the cross brings us into the kingdom, into life with God under his rule, then there's a relationship that heals our guilt and our shame. And that brings us to the third part of the gospel, which is grace. We have kingdom, cross, and grace. We could preach for months on grace and all the different possible definitions, but let's suffice it to say, grace is the unconditional love of our Father. Unconditional, undeserved, unmerited favor of God towards undeserving sinners in Jesus. And on our map out of the gospel here, it's the circle because it's the, it's the atmosphere that holds the whole gospel together. It's the reason why Jesus would come as a man, live, die, and rise again for us by grace. We didn't deserve it. And then every breath of the good life with God in the kingdom of God is one of grace. It's the air we breathe in the kingdom of God. Every experience of God's goodness in a relationship with him is undeserved. Our status as God's children adopted into his family through the cross of Christ is free, undeserved. Un un it's unconditional love. No one can swagger into life with God under his rule. No one struts into the kingdom because it's by grace that we've been saved. It's a gift. But at the same time, just because we don't strut or swagger, it doesn't mean we do the Eeyore shuffle on, all down on ourselves with the guilt and shame that we just talked about. Because remember, we're children of God. And how do children receive gifts? How do kids behave on Christmas morning? Oh, I'm undeserving. I can't believe mom and dad would do this. 
I'm going to be so good about making my bed from here on out. <laughs> if only. <laughs> no, kids are bouncing off the walls. They're, they can't, they lose their minds. I remember when I finally got a Nintendo 64 when I was in fifth grade. I like fake fainted because I just didn't know what to do. I was so excited. Grace holds the whole gospel together and it douses our life as God's children with a childlike joy and a deep gratitude for every good thing that we can experience in life with God. I found this really cool, obscure verse that talks about grace. It's Ephesians 2. Just kidding. Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 9. Page 1818, if you're following along. Starting in verse 1, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air. Do you see the other kingdom, the kingdom of the world? We're dead, and we're following this other kingdom. The spirit who is now at work and those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. So this is a great picture of life outside the circle where we're, we are not in God's kingdom. We're in the kingdom of the world. We are not free to enjoy God. We are enslaved to sinful desires and gratifying cravings. And then verse 4, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we are dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. So sometimes we can think of, hear the gospel shared like we're out at sea and we're trying to keep our head above water and we're treading water as hard as we can and Jesus comes by in a boat and throws us a life preserver and just reach out and grab it. But it seems like a more accurate example, according to Ephesians 2, is that we're not treading water. We're dead on the bottom of the ocean with fish eating our rotting flesh. That none of us reach out and grab God, but that we're dead in our transgressions. And then by grace, Jesus jumps in and swims down, pulls us up to the surface, brings us into the boat, and breathes new life. The life he has in his resurrection, he breathes life. And now we can experience life with God in his unconditional grace forever. I wanted to walk us through these three steps and then bring us back to the kingdom because you'll notice there are some nuances here. Because I think you can't be an Orthodox Christian unless you affirm it doesn't matter what you do. It's by grace we've been saved, it's through faith. And even the faith, the ability to believe, is not from you because no, so no one can boast. The faith is a gift. It doesn't matter what you do. The thief on the cross next to Jesus, his feet never touched the earth as a believer. And yet he was saved by grace. It, nothing we do has anything to do 
with our salvation. It's by grace we've been saved through faith. It doesn't matter what you do. Like Robin Williams and Goodwill Hunting. It's not your fault. It's not your fault. It's, that's, that's what the gospel is. It doesn't matter what you do. Our standing with God does not depend on what we do. We are adopted by grace. So here we get to, to the nuance that I want us to look at as we preach through the Sermon on the Mount, where it seems like Jesus is telling us to do a lot. In terms of our status with God, in terms of our identity as God's children, it doesn't matter what we do. By grace, we've been saved. But just thinking in terms of this grace-based adoption, how we experience the relationship of our adoption is greatly affected by how we live. If you adopt a child into your home, their experience of the reality of their adoption is going to be dramatically affected by how they live, how they obey, how they participate, the degree to which they're willing to leave whatever was normal before and open themselves up to a new normal and a new family. So there's this, it's not really a tension, it's more of mapping it out. When we're talking about grace, we're talking about justification. It doesn't matter what you do, it's by grace we've been saved through the blood of Christ, saved to life with him through his resurrection. But in the kingdom of God, what we do matters. Not that we can get kicked out, not that uh, we earn any more of God's love, but one of the gifts of the kingdom of God that we receive is that is the reality of that is that what we do matters any kind of nihilistic apathy that we see all over the world where everything is broken and nothing's going to happen is washed away and, and our lives are now bestowed with incredible power and weight by the holy spirit what we do matters in the kingdom life with god under the rule of god look back at the kingdom box here we actually seek the kingdom actively we we, we seek to obey Jesus and abide in his love. We, uh, we look at the way God's children are called to live in the world. Because the good life, which God, the second part is also important, under the rule of God, that everything is now on the table. Laying down everything to follow him. Seek first the kingdom. Seek first above everything else. And what we do impacts the degree to which we experience this good life with God. What we do impacts the degree to which we experience the good life with God. So there is a comfort of the gospel, and then there's the call of the gospel. And the call of the gospel is for our joy. The call of the gospel, we, we throw things off to get more of God. That's the whole point of fasting that we talked about. It doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter what you do. By grace we are saved through faith in the blood of Christ into the kingdom. And what you do matters immensely in the kingdom of God. It's bestowed by the power of the Spirit to have incredible influence in your own heart and the relation, in your re relationships with those around you. So there's the comfort of the gospel. It doesn't matter what you do. And then there's the call of the gospel that as a child of God, we now submit to the rule of our new father. For some reason, this line from the hymn has been in my head. Love so amazing, so divine. That's, what we're, that's the grace that we're called into. 
And then the call of the gospel is love so amazing, so divine, demands our souls, our lives, our all. You can think of it in terms of, we talk about adoption, talk about in terms of marriage. Like you can be married officially with a contract, but how you live in that marriage is directly going to impact how enjoyable that marriage is. The Sermon on the Mount is describing Christians in the world. It's describing how to live the good life with God. It's bold. It's all-encompassing. It's invasive. We talked last week about how uh, you know, Aslan in the Chronicles of Narnia, is he, is he safe? Well, no, he's not safe, but he's good. When we come to Jesus, when we come to the Sermon on the Mount, nothing is safe in our lives. Everything, uh, it, it requires us to embrace an entirely new normal in the family of God to make hard choices, to let stuff go that doesn't help the good life with God. We're not talking about sin and not sin. We're not talking about earning God's favor or God being mad with us. We're not talking about getting kicked out or earning our keep or anything. We're talking about how do we live life with God and get more of him. And the, I hope this is helpful for you to, to see the gospel mapped out because not every sermon is really going to be able to hit in full every aspect of this so grace we read ephesians and when i preached through ephesians it was one of the first sermon series i did here and for maybe like six weeks we just like creeped through this chapter talking about grace and people got so uncomfortable just so hitting grace so hard it was like people like started you know bleeding out of their ears it was the but 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 if you keep saying this, no one's going to serve in the church. If you keep saying this, why would anyone do their quiet time? How, how are we going to keep people from sinning if it doesn't matter what we do? That's because we were in Gracetown. We were in, in the part of the gospel that, or part of uh, the scripture that emphasizes grace. But listen, y'all, so, so now that was then, and people, we got uncomfortable. And now we're preaching the, the Sermon on the Mount, and... I'm not implying anything about what you're feeling. I'm just saying I feel super uncomfortable. So if you do, you're in good company. If not, maybe I'm not making sense. But this, the Sermon on the Mount is incredibly uncomfortable because it's a huge call on our life where grace says it doesn't matter what you do to get in. The Sermon on the Mount says everything you do matters. Everything you do is pointing you to a kingdom. It's just a question of which kingdom. So like a really innocuous one that I think we as Christians wouldn't even bat an eye. Jesus says in, in Matthew 5, if your brother has something against you, go to them and be reconciled. Like Jesus said that. That's a command of Jesus. But how easy is it to like switch churches or sit on the other side of the auditorium or just hang out with some other people and not actually deal with it when you, you feel the guilt and shame of actually having hurt someone? Like, that's invasive. That's our nitty-gritty relationships. That causes us to stare in the face the, the degree to which I believe I'm okay in Jesus so that I can actually apologize. Or when Jesus says, when you fast, like, literally don't eat in real life. Like, don't eat for the sake of experiencing more of life with God, growing in self-control. It's like, whoa, are we, are we legalists now? Well, no, fasting doesn't make God love us anymore. But Jesus is clear that fasting does bring us a reward of our Father, life with him under his rule. Paul says, you were bought with a price. Glorify God with your bodies. 
It's awfully invasive. And then Jesus talks about money. So hold on tight. That's where we're going next. Talks about our sexuality. Talks about our families. He says things like, anyone who hasn't left mothers and fathers and children and houses for my sake doesn't get into the kingdom. Jesus says this stuff. It is all of our life, and it matters. But the key is, none of, none of, nothing is safe when it comes to Jesus, but it's all very good. It's all his mercy towards us, calling us to, command, to obey him for, so that his joy can be in us and our joy can be full. And I know th- this is hard and stretching out the gospel. It's just so much easier to tuck in your pocket as Jesus died for your sins. And that is true and a crucial part of it. But it's just, it's way bigger. And I hope you can see that, like, we can hunker down and just stay here for the next 50 years diving into all the different elements of the gospel and then pass it on to your kids. And they can keep doing it. There's just, there, we never get past the gospel. And as we continue in the Sermon on the Mount, as we look at Jesus' prickly words invading parts of our hearts that we've kind of protected and isolated, offering God some stuff but keeping some stuff back, we have to keep the circle in mind that all this is in, in the air we breathe of grace. We look at these questions. What do I treasure? Where am I at with food? Where am I at with my money? Where am I at with broken relationships and people that I've wronged? The only way we can honestly answer these questions is if we're in the circle, if we're in the atmosphere of grace where we can honestly look at ourselves and say, yeah, that is not all the way okay. We're not talking about how to get in. We're not talking about earning our place or meriting any extra favor from God. We're talking about how to have our joy full as we live the good life with God. The Sermon on the Mount's kingdom living and that's what, we wanna, that's what we want to do here. As a city on a hill, we want to live the way Jesus calls us to. Now, typically when you start talking about the kingdom, people do tend to get a little bit uncomfortable. And, and I've had this said, like, just preach the gospel but if we don't see that kingdom living is part of the good news, the good news is not just that we end up on Stewart Street out of jail, but that we now can live life with God and we can now have resources and can make changes to, to flourish, that, that it is part of the gospel. And just quite simply, Jesus talked about it all the time. Jesus talked about real life all the time with his money, with politics, with taxes, with sex, with anger. And so my hope is that we would see the question of, uh, that, that we're asking ourselves as we go through the Sermon on the Mount is, is further up and further in. We act in the world so that everything helps us get m- more into the re- good life with God. Because remember, we've said for a few weeks now, everything is in service to relationships. Uh, Hebrews 12.1, I think, gives us some helpful language. So we live, if we're looking at our culture, we live in a culture of addition. If you have a problem, you need a medicine to fix it. Or you have a problem, you need something, you need to add something to fix the problem, as opposed to consider what might I be able to get out of my life to make the problem go away. Applies to a lot of different areas. 
But I think we see this biblically in Hebrews 12.1. This is the close. It says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. So as we talk about life and talk about things we might need to change or get rid of, we're, we're doing that so that we can run the race with endurance to get more of God. What can we cast off to get more of God? I say more, majority of our issues are questions of clutter, of distraction. And I think the best image I can think of of what this looks like is the, in the final book of the Chronicles of Narnia, The Last Battle. I strongly encourage you guys to read it. Sometimes we don't make it that far because there's like seven of them. The, the last battle, at this point, evil is vanquished. Aslan slash Jesus shows up, and he takes all his people to a Narnia remade. Where it says it's like with, it was like the exact replica of old Narnia, except better colors, more importance, more significance, as if the old Narnia was just a dream, and this was the true Narnia. And one of the characters says, I have come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land I have been looking for my whole life, though I never knew it till now. Come further up. Come further in. And then there's this beautiful scene of all of God's creatures running as fast as they can further up and further into to life with God, into the kingdom, into this new heavens and the new earth. And Christian, by grace, through, through faith in Jesus Christ, you belong in the kingdom of God. And so, as we walk through the Sermon on the Mount, hear the call to further up and further in. Think about running the race. It's running the race to the kingdom of God, more experiencing more of life with him. So like Hebrews says, we throw off the stuff that hinders. Or like the parable of the sower, we, we, we get rid of weeds that choke out the life of the kingdom so that we can chase fast after life with God. We can repent, we can turn, we can come home like the prodigal son and experience life with God. I'm going to close this in prayer here, uh, and then you notice we didn't do giving at the beginning part, uh, because what, as, as a preparation to talk about money, we see that our money is closely tied to the kingdom that we're seeking after. And so this isn't a call for extra money, I just in our liturgy uh, wanted to uh, respond to the sermon, respond to the call to treasure the kingdom above everything else by giving. So I'm going to pray, and then uh, the ushers will come forward and, and pass the baskets, and then we'll, we'll close, in, close in song. Father God, I'm so humbled by the incredible scope of your glorious gospel and just how tenuous my grasp is with all the gracious time and resources you've given me to explore it and how limited I am to be able to communicate it, and I praise you that it's not up to me or my abilities, but instead uh, your Holy Spirit calls us to